Hi, thank you so much for joining me on the show. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. I'd love to see you again, Megan. Great to be here. Yeah, it's been a while. I can't. I think when did we talk? Like 2018, 2019? Yeah, maybe three years ago. It doesn't seem that long ago. No, I know. And I've been following, of course, all the craziness that you deal with. So, yeah, it's sort of endless, eh? Yeah, yeah. A, you a. say as a Canadian, <laughs> did we get to do this podcast in Canadian? Because I can speak Canadian because I'm Canadian. So oh, I that's can, right, of course. Right, I so can where's your Canadian. A? So how do you want to go about this interview? Okay, well, you're speaking Ontario. Oh, is that Ontario? <laughs> what that's, is that's your East Coast accent? <laughs> what is West Coast accent? I don't know. Do I do I sound like I have an accent? People, I've been no, living in Mexico, me. and people told me that I have a Canadian accent, but I don't feel that I have an accent, so I have no idea what that. Well, no one like. ever feels they have an accent, but no, you have a less pronounced because you're right. The Eastern Canadian is also shared by Michigan. It's like Ooh, if you watch okay. Fargo, they have and they call soda pop like they have the same linguistic. So yeah, so the West Coast pop. may West Coast may be more close to American. Mm, I mean, yeah, I think I think my most Canadian things are my constant A's, and that makes me a very right. stereotype of a Canadian A. And you probably <laughs> are cheap and don't tip properly. No, I do. I'm a good tipper. <laughs> that's just because we're bougie in vancouver <laughs> right anyway i yeah i'm glad to have you thanks a lot i'm, well, I'm looking pleased forward to, to be here conversation. um i want to start by asking you do you identify as a feminist yeah i always have yeah okay and what so what does that mean to you well it's changed over time but when i began my journalistic career at the Toronto Sun, um, I uh, I was so I came of age in the eighties, and I was following the seventies feminists, who were very empowering and you know, sort of a riff on the song "Whatever a Man Can Do, I Can Do Better," and you know that we were career minded, that we that we shouldn't face any obstacles because of our sex. And I did a lot of early reporting on the feminist movement of Canada, actually. And what discouraged me was is this young, you know, rah-rah feminist was that, which I would later discover, unlike American feminism, um, Canadian feminism was all federally subsidized. So the major women's groups... Um, what I've, I'm now trying to remember what was our equivalent to the National Organizations for Women, but whatever they were, they were all heavily government subsidized. So they didn't have to rely on grassroots donations. And as a result, there was a very monolithic voice. Not that there wasn't in America, but there was a very monolithic voice. Um, and it was very weighted against men it was weighted against mothers it was very rigid in what it prescribed women to do which is career and forget men and as a young woman i i didn't like that message and so i started to report on that um and said why did it have to be this way why did it have to be either or and one of the first 
articles I wrote was for Saturday Magazine, which had a cover. It's like so gone, such another media world, but had a cover of like women against women. And it was like the feminists against mothers. And it was so incendiary, but it was based on this idea that why does being a feminist mean you have to be anti-men, you have to be anti-motherhood. You, It seemed very one-dimensional to me at that time as a young woman. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean... I think that's the kind of feminism that I participated in, uh, you know, I don't know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, I mean, I've, I've been a feminist since I was a child, essentially, but I sort of discovered, I suppose, like radical feminism, like Andrea Dworkin and, mm-hmm. um, you know, Sheila Jeffries and all those kinds of people. Uh, maybe when I was around 20 or something like that. And I, I found that really empowering, I think, because at that age, I had just I had a lot of anger, and I didn't know where to put it. And, and I didn't, you know, you're not you're really not empowered when you're that age, like you have no power in the world, you don't have any money, you don't have a right, career. right. And nobody's going to give you a serious job. I mean, unless you're like some credible athlete or ballerina or something. No one's going to entrust you with anything more than the photocopier until you're about 28. Yeah, exactly. And, right. You know, fair enough. <laughs> right. No, no. Fair. <laughs> but I mean, and I don't, I, I don't think that it was just, I don't think that it was just radical feminism. You know, radical feminism has this reputation of like hating men and hating sex and being anti-mother. I think that's sort of more of a, a modern feminism in general issue and i i guess i mean like why do you think that happened why do you think they're they're that feminism turned into sort of a i i suppose it's like a an attack on women's traditional roles which i'm mm-hmm. not actually necessarily opposed, opposed to. to right um but when did you see that happen like well, okay, so so there's a number of threads. Um, the thread that came in in the 1950s was a post-war phenomenon. That you have to remember that womanhood in the 50s was an entirely post-war creation. That before then, women worked. Uh, they worked at all levels. And by the way, working was not fun. Like most jobs, we have to posit that careers are different from jobs. And when most women work, it was like shitty jobs. Maybe they enjoyed it, you know, but the point was the minute you could get out of working and be bourgeois and have children and have someone take care of your children and clean your house and you did, um, you know, volunteer work or you did other things, that was a very traditional woman's life. Post-1950s, post-war, this whole idea that an educated woman would be confined to her home, um, told that the miracle of the washing machine would save her from having to hire help. Um, Post-war, imagine what you've been through, the death and the destruction. So coming home, having men home, having affluence, having these beautiful little suburban houses, which we would then come to hate, but at the time seemed like a freaking miracle. 
Um, there was a lot, like that post-war time, you can never look at it outside of the fact of the war. And to just project backwards and say, oh, women were just confined to the home and it was sexism is not a fair assessment. But it did breed resentment. And and Betty Friedan was the first one to break out. And she was a very, she was very unhappily married, but she always liked men and she liked sex, but she was very unhappily married. She was obviously a profoundly intelligent woman. She totally resented the Betty Draper lifestyle as many came to do. And, and so she wrote this seismic book. Um, so fast forward so you have the women's movement of the 1970s, which of many movements of, it, of its time w- was informed by Marxism and the leftist thought of the time. Mm. So if you go back and you read those, not Betty Friedan, but other radical texts of that time, what we would call radical feminism, if you swap out you know, uh, the word capitalist oppressor, for me, it was like a language swap. It was women were unfailingly impressed by, uh, sorry, oppressed by men. Um, uh, it, it was a dynamic that could never be resolved until the woman broke free. And so a lot of its ideology was informed by that era, you know, Marxism light. And, and I think when I came of age in the eighties, I took for granted so much of the progress that had been made, so much what these women had done to fight against that post-war sexism, which was really, really there. It's not to deny it wasn't there. Um, and, uh, but also not to think of oneself as a victim. And, and this is where I can say I was totally bratty and an asshole to all these women who had fought for so much and then you come along and go, thanks, world is great. I don't know what you're complaining about. Like, I totally get that. Yeah. On the other hand, that's progress where the next, ge- that's the point. The next generation comes along and goes, thank you. This is wonderful. I'm now going to live my life as a free person. I'm going to make these choices. I feel very empowered. I worked as a reporter uh, on a newspaper. My mother, who had also been a journalist, had done a lot of stuff, but had been more confined to the lifestyle pages. You know, we weren't anymore. We were, even by our very crusty old bosses, told to go pursue all the stories we wanted. So it didn't feel constraining. And then when you would go to, when I'd go cover um, uh, rallies and things, you'd see these older women complaining and railing against the war of the past. And that bothered me. And I felt very sexually empowered. Thank you, sexual revolution. So I didn't understand what they were talking about where men unfailingly had control over us. And none of it made sense to me. So that's what I started to write about. Um, and, And I got a lot of pushback from because of a prevailing ideology that still remained in the feminist movement and has taken, it hasn't, there hasn't been a lot of change. It's had permutations, but it's never lost this idea that we have to be politically opposed to men. 
um, that at some level, motherhood and uh, marriage is enslaving. At some level, uh, will never be earned more than men. And that's entirely because of sexism. Like whatever our problems are, the, it's, it's chalked up to sexism and misogyny and not to more real world issues that women face. So that's always been my cause and my passion. And that's how I've pursued feminism. Right. And it's, it's presented in a very simplistic way. You know, the complexities of why women might make less money than men are not really addressed, for example. And, you know, what, what frustrates me is that I feel that Canadian feminists will refuse to acknowledge that actually women in Canada, you know, have it pretty good, especially in comparison to a lot of other countries, you know, third world countries where women really still do face really horrific violence and oppression. And of course, women in Canada, you know, domestic violence is still a really big problem. Mm -hmm. Rape is still a really big problem. Prostitution mm -hmm. and sex trafficking and tra sex trafficking and pornography. Mm -hmm. Those are big problems. But in as far as like our choices, you know, our ability to kind of operate autonomously and do what we want in our lives, you know, get an education, have a career, decide whether or not we want to have kids or get married, you know, you know, we can own cars and property and have credit cards and all those things that the second wave and first wave feminists like fought for. And yet it's like, no, things are still horrible. We're still just as oppressed as all women everywhere. And in fact, these, I mean, this is a whole other topic, but a lot of Canadian feminists refuse to sort of criticize like Muslim cultures in Saudi Arabia. Right. Well, that's Saudi, just like, weird. That's just weird. That's weird. like, it's like two political correctness, like out canceling each other, you know, that the idea that you would not see these societies as highly misogynistic and something to fight for. One of the guests I recently had on our podcast is a woman named Gail Semek Lemon. And she's a really impressive journalist who went and documented the women, the Kurdish women who fought ISIS that they came from traditional, uh, very traditional families, not traditional like Saudi Arabia traditional and not super Islamic, but still very traditional families uh, in, 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 in the Kurdish areas of Syria where they were expected to marry who they were told to marry. They were, it was thought education was wasted on them. Um, they were often told not to play sports. And uh, they felt very oppressed, but they went, many of them just went along with it because what was the choice, right? Like you didn't have other examples. And then ISIS starts taking over um, a lot of Syria. And suddenly you have this enemy force coming at you that its idea is literally to enslave you and put you in cages and sell you like, that was what was happening. Um, and <laughs> these women just thought, you know, no, that's not happening to me. And they left their families to go and take up arms. They formed like a female constitution that they, they said that they would serve not under men, but they would serve under each other. And it worked. And not only did they 
um, start fighting in the most horrific circumstances you can uh, you can imagine in modern warfare in these in these small cities um, where you're fighting house to house. Uh, if you're captured, it's the worst thing you can imagine. Um, and not only that, but they also then took on uh, male troops who would, you know, come under their command and they came under their command and it was an incredibly successful operation and they beat back ISIS and they got American special ops on their side. So when, you know, yeah, we have problems, but when you start looking at our problems comparatively and overemphasizing our problems in comparison, like we should feel lucky for what we have. And we should be working to better our situations. And we should be looking for, you know, more equity and how do we work out these eternal problems of having children and realizing our ambitions. But seriously, um, you know, and that's this weird thing with Canadian, fe- well, with this Western feminism is you do not see the problems that could be, and maybe fine, all our problems are our problems like, my husband jokes, okay, I don't have third world problems. I don't have cholera, but I still have problems and they're my problems and they're first world problems. Okay, we have first world problems, but don't try to put them on the scale of third right. world problems. Right. And I mean, you know, like problems are problems. It's not, you can't, you can right. always compare and be like, oh, well, yeah. at least you're alive. <laughs> you know, like, right. at I least don't you have cholera. I have drinking yeah. water. I have drinking water. Yeah. I mean, that's great. But I mean, <laughs> obviously problems still matter and, you know, and obviously sexism still does exist in our culture, right. but I suppose like, you know, one of the things that I've begun to notice sort of more recently is that there's, there's this weird thing where modern feminism tells women, especially young women, that they're sort of permanently victims. Like they're mm-hmm. always being victimized and they're talking about, you know, what what those types might refer to as like microaggressions. Like it's like, you know, things that are, you know, not really such a big deal, um, but are treated as though they they really are a big deal like you know a man flirts with you at work or at the bar or things like man spreading or you know I, I you know we can talk about all these conversations about toxic masculinity like it's like you know i think a lot of young women are sort of trained to act and behave and assume that they're under attack all the time you know like a man interrupted me and i'm so i'm super oppressed and you know men do kind of men can be condescending and can interrupt a lot and can be really bad listeners but I mean, I interrupt people all the time. Yeah, also, but so, can so I can't really just put that on. Men. Well, I think I like there's... it's not that big of a deal. Like you can just right. like if a man is interrupting me, then I'll just be like, "Stop interrupting me!" Like you're not listening. Right. Like, right? But it's a bigger problem of how we are contriving reasons not to be able to talk to each other, mm-hmm. um, and um, it's worrisome. I mean, it's it's part of the whole. Um, culture that we have. And and I want to stress on right and left, each side has its own problems. Mm -hmm. Uh, And on on the left, we call it now cancel culture, but where uh, it's a safety culture where, you know, anything that it's a very anti-free speech of any kind, like 
anything you say that can I can be offended by is actually an act of violence. And what it really does is it denigrates actual violence. Like a word that offends you is not the same thing as a bullet to your head. And a man who clumsily flirts with you is not the same thing as rape. But we have started to conflate these things with the result that the actual issues that we have um, cannot be addressed because we have, we have created this whole perception of oppression that is not based on actual reality and acts of oppression, which are not based on oppression. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, and I, so I've, I've most of my like career writing about feminism has been focused on criticizing third wave feminism and this sort of idea that, you know, a woman can be empowered by anything she says she's empowered by. And, you know, that young women are going to be empowered by like posting sexy selfies on the internet Mm -hmm. and, you know, sort of in some ways behaving sexually like men. And that was something that always has frustrated me about this, this, iteration of feminism or whatever like this idea that we tell young women that they can and should be like men and that they again that they should have sex like men and i i really value like sexual freedom for women is a really important thing i really value that i think it's a big deal that women can now you know like Mm -hmm. have sex outside of marriage and have have pleasure in sex and right and have what they will and not have to worry about getting pregnant and yeah, and make choices about if they want to like have a baby with this guy, mm-hmm. right? That they maybe just wanted to have sex with or just wanted to date for a while. Um, but I don't actually think, like, I think that was a big mistake on the part of, you know, third wave feminists because I don't actually think that women, I mean, women can't have sex like men, but I don't think that women want to have sex like men. And I remember being a young woman and sort of thinking that I should, you know, that I should be having sex I can have casual sex. I can have a one night stand and like, I shouldn't feel anything about it. And this Mm -hmm. makes me like a powerful woman. Like I'm kind of like a player, like one of the boys. And at a certain point I sort of realized, you know, like this isn't satisfying for me physically Mm -hmm. or mentally or emotionally. Um, So, Well, well, it gets into the point of, of biological denial that part of the sexual revolution, the Erica Jong era of have sex like men, she called it, can I swear on your podcast? She, she called it the zipless fuck. Like you just go and you have these amazing sexual experiences with no constant, you know, no attachment like men. And it was, I think very, very exciting for a bit. And, uh, and it was fun if you were doing it on your own, but when society on mass began to do it and women suddenly realized, wait, um, we've just get, given men a license to, you know, have sex, no consequences, no commitment. And the, and the men are going like, <laughs> great. <laughs> really? This is perfect. Nothing. There's no Thank commitment. You. You're not expecting anything of me. I mean, we used to be, we'd have to get married and things like that. So like there are benefits for relieving some of the constraints, but it also 
puts in denial that women have different attitudes towards sex, that they approach sex differently. And it's not to say you're not going to enjoy the occasional one night stand or whatever, but it's also to say that if you are looking for a meaningful relationship, and I, I have to, I talk about this with my young daughters who are, you know, in their twenties and very woke in every way, but they, they understand intuitively that what they want out of these encounters is not what a man wants. And they get ground down by, you know, my youngest daughter in high school by these guys who, I don't know, watching porn or whatever they watch and, and kind of expecting certain behaviors from, from young women. And, um, and if you don't want to be part of that, it's just degrading. You're just, potentially treated like a prostitute. And that's not what you want. But yet we've lost the language to say, that's not what I want. Um, And if you say that's not what I want, they're like, what are you prudish? Are you not, you know, and it's a, it's a, it's a bad situation that we have put young women into. And I think there's a good reason why this younger gen Zers have depression and anxiety and, are telling people they're not having sex. I don't know whether that means intercourse or whether it means like other types of sex, but, but the point is, is that it's not, they're not embracing it. Like Erica Jung, they're not going in there and going, Whoa, sex. It's become this oppressive, unsatisfactory thing that makes them unhappy when it should be joyful. It should be part of a fulfilling relationship Men and women should be having these wonderful connections with each other. So if we're not, we have to ask ourselves, why not? What is going wrong? What is it? And and if we're not allowed to speak honestly about biological differences and men and women taking different approaches to sex, we will never be able to answer that question. Right. And, you know, I, I think it's so sad because I feel like young women today have grown up in this you know, porn culture where pornography is normalized to the point where girls and young women feel like they have to participate. Like it's totally normal to, you know, meet a guy online and send him nudes. Like, and I Mm -hmm. would have never, I would have never, I still don't do that now, but I would have never done that when I was 20. We didn't have dating apps. Like we weren't online in that way, but it's like, you know, like I just, and that they have to sort of, you know, pornify themselves and sexualize themselves online. And that this is like, how you're going to get a boyfriend. Like, that's not how you're going to get a boyfriend, actually. Like, and if a guy likes you and wants to hook up with you or wants to date you, like, he's not going to need you to send him a nude, you guys can just meet up and then you can have sex and then I'll see you naked. So there's a lot that I don't really understand about all this. But right sort of I mean, I know that it's been normalized. But at the same time, I can't help just be frustrated and be like, why are you participating in this? Like, why are you doing it? Like, you don't well, you, have to do it. You've lost a language of courtship. And the cor- the language of courtship depended on letting a man make the first moves. You can call it power. You can, however you want to, like, politicize it. But in the end, that, you know, men making the first moves, letting men do the pursuing, um goes back to ancient times and um and so when you eliminate that 
and you try tell women that um, this should not be the case, they should be making all these moves, they should be willing to do whatever. It, it makes no sense. And it doesn't lead to the kind of relationships that I think women want and men ultimately want too. I mean, we've got this, I, I feel like we've got two sides that do not suddenly know how to communicate at all. And both sides are terrified. You know, the men are terrified and they're terrified. They don't know what to do. They think, well, we're told women, (laughs) women want to behave like porn stars and like, that's what I see. Why don't you want to do this? And women are like, ah, and it's, it's a sad situation. And, and there's no, there's nowhere that they can turn to get the right answers. It's, it's frustrating. Yeah. Well, and I feel, I feel like radical feminism sort of got a bit close. Like I remember one of the first books, I mean, she's not a radical feminist, but one of the first books that sort of turned me on to the idea that I was like, Oh, it's okay that I don't like watching pornography and going to strip clubs. Like I don't have to do that to be like a cool, open-minded, like sexually liberated woman. Cause it always made me uncomfortable and grossed out and I hated it, but I felt yeah. like that's what I was supposed to be yeah. into. Cause that's what third way said. Yeah. And you're prudish if you don't like that stuff. But I read Ariel Levy's book, um, female chauvinist pigs. Um, did you ever read that? No, I didn't. I did. It- I mean, it's a good book. Like, I recommended it to a lot of young women. Like, when young women would be like, oh, what should what should I do? Like, good introduction to feminism, sort of radical. But it criticized that hyper-sexualized, like, hyper-pornified, mm-hmm. like, girls-gone-wild culture where girls were supposed to, like, have their tits out all the time and, like, having sex on camera and, you know, making out with other women because that's what men like to see because they've yeah. learned from pornography that, you know... Right. Like, no, it's a kind of new enslavement. like to perform lesbian, <laughs> fake lesbian right. sex for them. Right. But, you know, I think it got close, but then I think it also sort of misses the mark in that it... I mean, it goes... It goes I don't want to go it goes too far is such a cliche right but it goes to the point where it's like heterosexuality is bad and heterosexual sex is bad and you know heterosexual couplings are just inherently problematic and not equal and you know marriage is bad and I've I've long been a critic of marriage to be honest and now I'm sort of like eh like I mean it's not my goal to get married but sure I would it's not I'm not like against it in the way that I used to be but all of those things and you really kind of internalize that and I think it really creates like an unnecessary conflict between men and women and in, and between men and women in your personal life if you're a young woman and you're feeling like you're being oppressed in your relationship all the time I mean maybe you are being oppressed in your relationship but maybe you just are sort of wanting or trying to force something that's really never going to happen right um, there was, I think there was a, there was a kind of sweet spot. I don't know when it was, maybe the early seventies where there was this kind of acknowledgement of male sexism, you know, Don Draper post-war. And then there was this kind of blossoming of female sexuality. And there was this sort of leaving of marriages that had been done for the sake of getting married. And then there was this like moment and I may be romanticizing it, but there was this moment where women, There was this brief moment where men and women came together and they discovered their like 
sexuality and women demanded that their sexual needs be taken seriously. And men were like, sure. And it was a kind of nice thing that lasted five minutes. Um, and um, I think today it's, it can and could be that way, but we've so, I always thought one of the worst phrases of that era of feminism was the personal is political. The personal should never be political. Never, right. ever, ever. Right. That, right. that creates totalitarian systems. The personal is personal. And when you enter into a relationship with a man or with anyone, the main thing is it's based on mutual respect. And if there's mutual respect, you don't have to get into union agreements about who does what, you know. Well, I loaded the dishwasher, so I guess you're, you know, unloading the dish. Like, if you love each other and you're in a relationship of mutual respect, you want to please each other. It's not oppressive. I want to please my husband. My husband wants to please me. We want to be happy together. We respect each other. We both want the best for the other. We both support the other in their hopes, dreams, and aspirations. Uh, if we have children, we work out the best arrangement. Um, but you're not constantly, constantly bartering. And I think that's one of the th sad things of relationships, that if a woman feels like the minute she does the, you know, loads the dishwasher, that that's it. I'm being oppressed or a man feels, you know, nagged or whatever. It, it's, it's, it's a terrible dynamic, but if you both respect each other and you will both want the best for each other and you're both kind to each other, that doesn't happen, you know? And then you have a, you have a threshold on which to negotiate all the other things. It's not to say that you don't get into arguments about who does what, but it's based on a premise of goodwill, of mutual goodwill. And we've taken that language away a lot and that young women are very mistrustful. They think they're going to be oppressed and men are very mistrustful. They think they're going to be shamed and, you know, they feel that they're going to be in a relationship where they're denigrated and, you know, told their oppressors and told that everything they say and do is wrong. And it's not good for anybody. And, and the sexes have to get along. I mean, future of humanity depends on it. Like we can't just stop doing this, you know? So um, if we're all just self-empowered individuals, you know, like atoms, we're not, <laughs> we won't, we won't continue to exist. So we have to work it out. Yeah. I, yeah, I've been thinking about that recently and talking about that recently, that idea that um, you should be forcing your politics onto your relationship so that, and again, like I keep, I feel like I repeat myself so much, but it's like, I'm just trying to be like accountable for the fact that like I did this stuff and I sort of have been thinking about it in the past few years and been like, oh, maybe that was not the right way to go about this. Like, forcing your like feminism or your Marxism or whatever onto your your intimate relationship with your partner I mean god how exhausting but also like I think I think you're right is like I think that the the key issue is respect which I'm sure some might argue is political you know that's like a feminist aim men respecting women mm -hmm. but it 
it, it doesn't really, it's not, I don't think it actually is political. Cause I think it's like, if you trust your partner and you know that your partner respects you, then you don't feel like you have to argue about everything. You don't have to be combative. You don't have to like win every argument or prove every point. And I think that young women do sort of enter into relationships with men and just, you know, not even with their boyfriends, just like men that they're dating or men that they're hanging out with friends in this way where they just have to fight everything and they have to argue about everything and everything so is about exhausting. sexism. And it's like, God, why would any, I mean, first of all, why would anybody want to hang out with you if you behave like that? <laughs> like if, right. right. You don't, you don't, everything shouldn't be a fight all the time. Like you kind of just want to like relax and hang out and be yourself and not have to argue about freaking politics all the time. Right. And there's a whole history of romantic literature that, um, you know, when you look at, look at the best romantic literature, you know, um, the men respect the women and not in a patronizing way that, that the best marriages through history were partnerships and um, each worked to their strengths and women have strengths. Uh, men have strengths. Um, you know, men are really good at lifting heavy stuff. Um, <laughs> and, and like denying that, like, it's just silly. I know they're pretty handy. Like, <laughs> well, no, actually fix stuff that I don't no, know. How to no, no. In our household, it's the reverse. I, I wield the power drill, but my husband is tech support. No, I do not but, it, it, but it's well. also just, it's just finding <laughs> what are your strengths? What are your true pat being living? We talk about living in truth, like living in truth. And one of the things, I mean, when I first had our first child, it was the early 90s, and I was very schooled in the we are exactly the same, we are all very equal, um, I have a baby, and then, oh my God, suddenly I'm nursing. My husband's not nursing. He's not nursing. His chest isn't exploding every four hours. Um and I can approach this as being a completely unfair situation and biology is trying to make it destiny and I can rail against that. But in the end, I'm the one nursing and he's not. And so how are we going to make this work? And am I a lesser person because I nurse? Um, mm. Am I a lesser person because I want to step back and say, you know what, all those things I thought I would be doing this year, probably not going to happen. And he's like, okay, so I'm going to step up and do this. Like, that's what you do. That's how you support each other. That's how you have a family. Um, you don't have a family by the woman sitting there nursing and being aggrieved that she's nursing. And the man like, what the hell? You said you were going to the office, you know, two weeks from now. What's happening with that? Like, that's not going to end in success. Um, it has to be a series of compromises and acknowledgements of reality and what you really want to do, not what you profess or think you ought to be doing. Yeah. And I know, I mean, you've talked about, I was just listening to an interview that, that you did. Um, you've talked about, you know, women, maybe just people in general. I think you were talking about women specifically not accepting adulthood and sort of this, this modern trend of of women waiting to have babies and get married and i think i think you i mean correct me if you're if i'm wrong but 
you sort of perceive it as a problem, like women are waiting too long. And I do think, I do think there is a thing. Like I, I have friends who got to, you know, 39 years old and were like, oh shit, I want to have a baby. Now I'm desperate. Like I got to freeze my eggs and yada, yada, mm-hmm. yada. And it's like, at that point, it's sort of almost too late. You know, like I, I know women right. who've had babies at 43 or you know, right. 41 you or still, whatever. Like it happens, you know, but it's harder. And some women at that point can't. Right. And this was the premise of my first book, which came out in 1999, maybe 2000, which was called What Our Mothers Didn't Tell Us. And it was sort of pushing back on a lot of these ideological feminist ideas that we didn't want motherhood, the careers would be the be all and end all, marriage was enslaving, so screw that, you know, and and the result was that it had young women postponing and postponing and postponing these decisions about marriage and motherhood while putting everything into their career. And what you said earlier in the program, like in your twenties, no one's trusting you with anything, but the photocopier, you know, it's, it's so nature designed your twenties. I'll say why this is not as relevant today, but nature basically decide young women, you need to have babies now. You know, and that's not always convenient, but that's when your body is most ready for it. That's when also by nature, you're most flexible and mentally up for it, even if you don't think you are. So, okay, but we're modern women. We live longer. And also, can we just say men today are very postponed adolescence that men, I think it's safe to say until their 30s are not thinking even of settling down. Um, no, I mean, men, I know men who are in their forties who are still thinking, right. Like, oh, maybe I'll get married and have babies someday. Right. I'm like, are you all insane? <laughs> but they have the biological advantage. Now sure, we're finding so they're, they're not behaving in a way where they're pursuing. A, no, a no, because, because in their mind, like, why, why should they? Right. And, we're now finding out that the older you have as a man, like there are biological repercussions that there are higher incidence of autism, for example, in your children. Hmm. But be that as it may, the male, the male has no reason if he doesn't have to, to that's what social conformity in previous eras were like the man had no biological imperative to settle down early so all of society conspired to make him settle down early and women, you know, didn't sleep with men anything because they had to get married. Okay. There are many offsetting benefits for not living in that kind of world. But as you point out, so I think, and I think this is a false message that young women get that you have endless time. Um, that you probably don't want to, if you, if you want kids at all, you're not going to really want to think about them till you've got your career up and running. So now you're getting into 30, 31, 35. And from a biological um, perspective, yes, it's true that our modern science has made it much easier for you to get pregnant, but it's still you know, there are many obstacles. And the later you push it, the more you know, skeptical, you know, the more um, dodgy it becomes. And then 
And this is the dark thing that no one will tell you and I'll say, and I'll be prepared to be canceled for it. Your sexual appeal wanes as a woman. Let's just accept it. And men, it's, it's, you can call it discriminatory. But as you get older, I, I remember writing in my book that when you're in your 20s, like there are just so many men. They're like the subway ca- cars at rush hour. They're just, they're all coming through at regular intervals. And then you get older and older and in your 30s, and suddenly it's like the New York subway system at midnight. And there are fewer and fewer cars. And when the cars stop and the, the doors open, it's filled with crazy people. And this is the thing that no one will tell you honestly, that it's, it's a little less true. Like I think young women are, you know, into their thirties are more successful than in my time, but it, it is, a, it's a thing. And, 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 so we may be looking now at women settling down at 30 with men who are 38 or 40 and women who are 32, but you do have, women still do have a biological clock. There is an optimal moment for your body to have them. And my point also was if you're an ambitious woman, it made a lot more sense to have kids early because of the photocopying rule that if you have your kids in your, if you can arrange it, if it works out to have your kids in your twenties, um, you don't really get going till your thirties and forties in your career. So you have a lot of time to mess about and what you would be doing as interns, you know, you could be doing as a young mother if again, fate works out that way. But my advice was always to, to women Stop putting this decision off. Stop thinking of marriage and motherhood as an auxiliary. Because in the end, our marriages, male or female, our families are the most important relationships we have. Jobs will come and go. Jobs are important. Careers, if you're lucky to have one, are important. But what is the satisfaction you get out of life? What are your primary relationships? You know, what is the joy of life? That's all going to come from your most intimate relationships. And they should not. And it bothered me that you'd have all these guidance counselors for your careers, but nobody was saying, how do I arrange my life so I can achieve my ambitions, but also achieve the family relationships that I want? And and maybe that's a course that needs to be taught to men as well, that, you know, you suddenly see these, the male equivalent is a 45-year-old who's just like, wakes up one day and realizes like he's got a s- stiff leg and macaroni and cheese in the freezer and no one really cares about him. And, you know, that's not a good existence either. Um, you know, that no. they, that men want these men will wake up maybe a little later than women, but they wake up and they say, you know what? I'm tired of being a bachelor, tired of living like a college frat boy I want a more meaningful relationship. I want to step up. I want to have family. How am I going to do it? Yeah. Or yeah, I want an intimate relationship. I mean, I, I never wanted to have kids when I was 20. I still don't want to have kids like this. I probably am somewhat of an anomaly. So it's, it was hard for me when I was younger to relate to women who wanted kids. Cause I was like, why would you want, 
a baby in your house mm-hmm. or coming out of your body, you crazy person. Yeah, it's a terrifying <laughs> thought. Trust me. <laughs> so like, I'm actually, I'm happy. And I just, I, I, yeah, I just never did. But I mean, I acknowledge that this is like a biological thing. There is no argument for children. There is no <laughs> argument for children. No, there's no, like when like you I'm are you, <laughs> um, and you think, I mean, my husband, we got married crazily young. We were, an, we were anomalies. It just happened that we did. And it was his forceful nature that we got married because I was like very modern. Like we could, we could live together. It's fine. You know, but he was also the force to have children. And I think I had my first child at 28 and I had zero thought about it. Like I was really happy just coasting. I didn't think about having children. I didn't have the baby urges to have children. And I remember David saying to me, um, I don't want to be an old dad. And that had a real resonance. And that sort of hit me. And then I thought about, well, maybe I was just being too carefree and selfish. And so we had this child. And within eight months, his mother had died. Uh, She had ongoing leukemia, but it had been in, you never thought that it was actually going to hit, but it did. So for eight months, she was able to enjoy this child. And then it really hits you, you know? And like, if I'm going to have kids, I want them to know my parents. I want them to know them as young people. I don't want them to know them as infirm people. Um, If I'm going to be a parent, I want to be a young parent. I don't want to be like, like my own parents were. I want to be able to have energy and fun. Like my nightmare is having my first child like late in life, like, Oh my God, you know, now our third child is just about to leave the house. And, and, it's sad, but lovely. Like I feel still very youthful and there's a, there's a kind of natural pattern that when you defy it, it, it has a, you know, everything has its repercussions. So we have been more constrained as young people because we had kids early. On the other hand, we're going to be more liberated as middle-aged and older people because we did. Uh, so, but you just, I guess, I guess the thing that bothers me is nobody is instructed or cautioned to think about these things in this way or th- give the importance to these decisions that you might not want kids now. And there'll be no arguments for kids because you can make a list of positive and negatives. And when you make the list, the negatives outweigh every positive until you actually have the kid. And then all the positives that you couldn't, you can't write them down. You, you don't know what they are until you've had the kid. And then the negatives just seem like irritants. Oh, it cries. Who cares? But no one is thinking seriously of if, well, I might not want a kid when I'm 20, 30, 35. What happens when I'm 60 and I don't have a kid and it's too late? How am I going to feel? How am I going to feel not having that family around me? Um, having grown kids is an amazing thing. My kids are now my friends. And that's a thing that you, you cannot project. You cannot, um, put on your list of pros and cons, but having 
a grown family have watching them have children. That's an amazing thing that we've sort of lost the fabric of. We've lost the, the, that this is just a natural part of life. It's all become very choice oriented and individualized. I mean, I do, I do, I I think what you're saying about having kids early in your 20s actually does kind of make a lot of sense. Um, I would question my ability in any case to choose a good partner at that age because I feel that right. my no, relationships fair, it's a have improved it's a as I'm total older. Lottery. It's luck. Like, imagine if I was with my boyfriend that I had at 20, like that's yeah. completely different people. Like it never would have worked. Um but I also, I mean, I think, and I, I, you know, I think it's really, again, I think it's really important that women now do have the choice. Like they can sort of create the lives that they want. And I've made choices because I do, I have prioritized my work and my career mm-hmm. is really important to me. And I have prioritized my freedom and my ability to travel and sort of do what I want or whatever. And I'm, I'm happy with those decisions, but I see what you're saying. And a lot of women do get to a certain age and they realize like, oh shit like I really should have done this earlier instead of you know thinking or being told that I can have it all and I can wait and because you know even I always feel really sad for women who are like again who get to like 39 40 whatever and are like oh I want to have kids I should think about freezing my eggs and I was like that's not a solution like freezing your eggs first of all is really really expensive and it's not a guarantee of anything like it really doesn't even work that well and I think women I think a big thing that's happened, not just for women, but for our culture in general and for people in general in the West is that we think that we've outsmarted nature. Mm-hmm. Like we don't, Oh, you know, biology. Nah, like that, like evolution. Nah, like we're not animals. And it's like, no, you are like, right. And that's what, <laughs> that's what you discover when you have a baby. Let me know. And, and yeah, your chest explodes and you're going like, why is my chest exploding? But it's also, I, I think to your point, and of course, you know, I didn't do anything especially clever because it was pure luck that I met the person I would marry and that he had the force of mind to be more traditional than I was. Um, but if I had not met him, I can totally see myself just bumbling along and feeling that these things were not important. And I think that's one of the things that I would try and convey is to men and women that if you want a serious relationship in your life, you have to be serious minded about it. And you have to, when you date, you know, date purposefully. Um, don't put up with shit. Uh, if, you know, think that what is my end goal? My end goal is whatever it is. I want to meet someone seriously. I want to have children. So, you know, after age 22, I stop effing around and I start thinking, this is, this is my goal. And you'll have different relationships and you'll have ups and downs, but your goal will be your goal. And I think part of the problem is young people don't have this sense, as you say, of looking at yourself as 40 or 50, um, and just kind of rolling with things and putting up with temporary relationships and 
pseudo living together and, and dating for a long time with someone you don't really like, instead of just saying, you know what, this is shopping. I'm going into the store. I'm going to find the dress for the prom and I'm going to look at a lot of dresses, but I'm going to, I'm going to get that dress. And, and just being serious minded about what you want and realistic about your long-term goals. And it may be, as you say, it may be like, I don't think I want children or I don't care if I have a relationship. Fine. But if you think you want those things and you have to treat them more seriously and give them at least as much attention as you do to your career. Like if I want to be, you know, a partner in a law firm by age 35, what else do I want? I want to be married or I want to be a mother. Give them that serious attention. That's all I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's good advice. I mean, there's so much focus on like romance and love that we get sort of swept up in that and forget to think about what our goals are in the relationship because it's like, oh, you're like having great sex or you're in love. And, you know, this is my pattern. I'm not talking about everything. Well, at least you're having romance. I think part of the problem we're saying is that people aren't having even romance. It's just these like shitty encounters. Endless like casual encounters. I know. I just, I, yeah, I think that's really depressing also. And I mean, so you recently interviewed Nancy Jo Sales, who I recently (laughs) interviewed also. Yes. Awkward interview. (laughs) How was your interview? How was your interview with Nancy Joe? It was, I mean, I enjoyed talking to her. I felt that she was very defensive. Um, so, you know, so I took the position of like, you know, dating apps are not for women. Dating apps are for men. And most of the men on dating apps want to hook up and they think of dating apps as free, you know, free prostitution or pornography. You know, they're angling for some one of these chicks. Guys on those are playing a numbers game. They're just swiping right on everybody. It's not a compliment to you that a a guy matched with you. It doesn't mean anything about you. He's just swiping right on everybody. I'm I'm making sweeping generalizations, but I would say this is true for a majority of men. And there's like, you know, data and research to show this. And, you know, if you just observe how men behave on the apps, you'll see this. But, you know, they... They're not on there thinking, oh, I'm I'm going to find a woman to date and be in a relationship and maybe get married. They just want somebody to come over and have sex with them or maybe send them nudes or maybe sex with them or whatever. And women, for the most part, are on there looking to fall in love I, and I would, looking to be I in would. relationships. And I'm like, what are you doing? Why would you do this? And I think, I, you know, I was like, women should not participate in this. Men aren't going to go on the apps if women aren't there. Why are you doing this for men when it's something that doesn't serve you at all and isn't what you want? And so I think I think she felt, I wasn't saying this like you, you, you to her. And I was saying this in general about women using dating apps. I would have thought she would have agreed with you on that, honestly. She, she, has- she agreed with me, but then she also felt that I was being judgmental. Like she said, <laughs> yeah, I think women should get off dating apps. But then she was like, but, you know, we have to remember not like women not to judge. You know, women are on there because they feel lonely and they want. And I was like, I know why they're on there. I get it. It just is irrational and isn't going to get them what they want. And women should not be having casual sex with strangers. Like, like, yeah, there's okay. There's a lot of rape and sexual assault that happens. Like, surprise, surprise. You're inviting a strange man into your home. You don't know anything about him. He's not accountable to you. You don't know anyone that he knows. Like, I was just like, this is 
a weird thing to do and probably kind of a dangerous thing to do, or at the very least not a satisfactory thing. Now, do your listeners know about the Nancy Jo Sales problem, like in her book? I don't know what that is. Well, no, no. Do what I? Nancy Jo Sales was trying to say and what she ended up saying. So uh, Nancy, Nancy Jo Sales wrote this book uh, called uh, Nothing Personal, My Life, My Life in the Dating App Inferno. And her and she had done a lot of work as, as a Vanity Fair writer uh, for um, positing that these dating apps were causing havoc, especially in young women's lives, and that they were dehumanizing. They reduced dating to like consumer culture. They were swiping. They were based on Twitter models, which is like based on gambling and slot machines, where it just creates a demand for. Uh, variety and the an next thing like an addiction addic- right kind an of addiction and, and, and nothing meaningful and right stuff. no meaningful relationship yada yada and she'd interviewed and and her journalism was interesting she'd interviewed a lot of people about this including the founders of some of the major dating apps and then she wrote this book which i just cited nothing personal and so it was a weird thing when i read it i don't know what your reaction was but i read it And I'm reading on the one hand, she's got all this rage about dating apps and everything we just said. On the other hand, she is, as you say, (laughs) inviting, she's using Tinder. She's my age and I'm 58. She's 57. And she was doing this in her early 50s. She's setting her profile for men between 25, like in their 20s, not like under 30. And she's setting her parameter for casual sex. So predictably, she gets a lot of men uh, calling up at two in the morning, ready for casual sex, which she has. Uh, and that's all great. I would actually, I would I would be more liberal than you, uh, Megan. I would say, you want casual sex? You're willing to take the risk? You want to do this? Fine. It's your life. Go ahead. But Nancy Joe gets upset when they don't want a meaningful relationship with her. That was the weird paradox. So when she came on our show and I said, so I can see why you, you know, you have this theory that all this casual sex is dehumanizing because you experienced it. I thought you were like a personal cautionary tale about doing this because you were so upset. They didn't want meaningful relationships. They didn't call you back. You were reduced to these humiliating situations of texting them and chasing after them and like no reply. And, and then she just went and she started accusing me of slut shaming her. And, and the only reason that they wouldn't have called her back or behave badly was because of misogyny and uh, patriarchy, nothing to do with her own behavior, nothing to do with the parameters she set on her dating app. And it was bizarre. But she personally took no responsibility for the fact that uh, a woman in her 50s wanting to date men in their 20s and have some sort of long-term meaningful relationship was not going to work out. And she got angry at me for pointing that out. I mean, there's a few things that I want to pick up on there. Um, one is which I, I mean, I would never date a man 
in his 20s. Uh, yeah, like that it would be awful. Like, I don't know why anybody would want to do that. I'm sure it's nice if you're also in your 20s and you well, know, no, I mean, as a like, you know, I'm 41, but even when right. I was in my 30s, I didn't want to date men in their 20s. No, no, it'd I be like dating time... a Labrador retriever puppy or something. Oh, God, they're yeah. terrible. They're just, I mean, not, they're just useless and stupid and insecure. No, and, like, they're no, not on your just, level. Not, like, it's like dating not... a child. Like, I'm right. Like, oh, it's like dating, I, in my case, she said, do you have a son? I said, yeah, he's 27. Like, <laughs> in your kind of parameter, which freaks me out. Like, the idea that I would date someone my son's age is so upsetting to me. I mean, that said, like, if you did just want, like, and to be, like, I've had casual sex in my life. I've had plenty of casual sex. It's just that I don't, they're not strangers for the most part. I mean, I'm sure there's, and, you know there's blips here and there but it's like they're people that i know like they're my friends right friends no, she friends. was having them up circle, to her like, not like just strangers that i've plucked off an, an app or right whatever. one of the like, men she had up and she got very attached to was homeless he was like 27 she invited him up like at 11 p.m at night and as he was coming up the stairs to her apartment she realized that this was potentially foolish and she put a knife in her back pocket. So when he came in that, you know, she was ready and think, girl, if you're putting a knife in your back pocket to meet someone, probably not a good idea to have him in your apartment, you know, at least meet on the corner, go for a drink. But she had him in the apartment and it was it made no sense it just I mean, I, yeah i think i mean i don't want to trash her because you know like i like her and i thought the i think that her work has been really good and interesting on this issue and like how you know social media has affected girls and you know mm -hmm. the dating apps really are horrible for society and and culture and relationships and intimacy and women i, I mean i think that's true I suspect that she was probably like, I think she was defensive because I think when she was on these dating apps and engaging in this, she probably was maybe going through a hard time in her life and felt lonely and was maybe. No, something actually I, I take the opposite view. One of okay. the things when I was reading the book, I realized there was a deep vanity in this that she loved the idea that she could mesmerize and have these 20 somethings. And again, when they worked out, when they didn't work out, she didn't blame herself or them. Like she blamed this whole notional ideology. And then what really bothered me was she, she did everything that she accused men of doing. So she objectified these young men. She nicknamed them by their sexual preferences. Uh, when she decided she needed to pay some bills, she went out and looked for a man, a richer man, to pay her bills. Uh, and that was somehow empowering and payback. It wasn't like, hey, I'm just going out to use a man the way I would object to a man using me. No, I thought she was unbelievably hypocritical and, and just completely unself-aware uh, of what she was doing. And it was a weird thing because as you say, I think she had some good points to make about social, these dating apps. And I also disagree that men are on these purely for sex. Obviously that's true of a lot, but there are a lot of men using these apps 
trying to find the same thing that we are. They're, they're trying to find relationships. Um, the ones who are not super attractive feel very scorned, you know, just as a less attractive woman feels like she's never going to get swiped on. Like it's a, it's a terrible medium for meeting people, but younger people seem to be making it work. They seem to know how to use it. I had my daughter on that same podcast. She's 29, just talking about how you use it. And it's, you know, it's, it is what it is. It's part of our culture now. It's part of our dating culture and you have to be able to master it. But I don't think, I wouldn't write it off that it's all sexism. It's all men just getting what they can. Um, I think it's tough on both sides. And in her case, I think, I think, I'm sorry, I think she's a case. I, I just feel that all of her reporting was undermined because I realized she was going to the degree that there's something interesting to say about this whole dehumanization and consumerism of apps was undermined by the fact that she herself was going into it looking for the sexism and misogyny rather than letting the reporting do its work. And that, that bothered me as a journalist. So I think this is actually a problem with a certain brand of modern feminism. Like, I think this is sort of what we were talking about earlier, where it tells women that they're permanently victims of misogyny and that they should see the world through this lens at all times and they should just do whatever they want and they can't be accountable because they're victims. And the con the weird conflict is that this kind of feminism tells women that, you know, they're empowered by all these ridiculous things that aren't empowering again, like sexualizing mm -hmm. themselves, objectifying themselves, selling themselves on only fans, like mm -hmm. getting a sugar daddy, um, trying to have sex like men, uh, you know, participating in porn culture, like going to strip clubs and pretending that's like a cool thing, taking pole dancing. I mean, I could go on and on and on. But at the same time, they're permanently victims of misogyny and they have no power. And when anything bad happens with a man, it's the it's systemic misogyny or mm -hmm. it's patriarchy or whatever. And they're never actually going to be able to be really empowered because they don't think they have to change anything they do. Right. No, it's it's a really it's really handy if you want to never have to take responsibility for your life or blame yourself for anything that went wrong. But it's not going to lead you to fulfilling relationships, as Nancy Joe discovered. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I just yeah, I think like and I think that this is like a larger cultural problem. Where no, it is. It's, it's, and we've called it like victim feminism or whatever. And it's a yeah. part of it's a it's a. It's a part of the same thing that we were talking earlier about, like safety culture. Like I can't hear anything or see anything that makes me uncomfortable because then it's, you know, it's, it's a violation. It's assault. It's whatever it is. It's yeah. people have to take responsibility for their lives and their actions. And that's the most empowering thing. And women are empowered when they do that. And when they look at themselves truthfully and they see their, flaws in their strengths um, and also see men as similarly flawed and complicated creatures yeah. who like, want the same things that they want to and um, deserve to be treated with respect too. Like, it's like, I think that we, I mean, I can, I can say I did this. Like you, 
you're expecting a man to change so much. Like you, you can't enter into a relationship expecting somebody to be how you want them to be. And if I just tell them this or explain this to them, then it's fair for me to expect them to behave differently or to communicate in the way that I want them to communicate or to want the same things that I want. And like, it's like you do, you do have to res- respect that other person and respect that they're different than you right. and respect the fact that men are different than you. Like men are not. Well, like so, and why, and why do you presume you're right? You know, yeah. why do you presume you're, you're in the right, that your opinion of how things should be is better. I remember in our, when I was dating my husband, our first year, and my way of arguing was to storm out of the room, just like, block it. And I did this two or three times. And then he told me that that was not an acceptable way of arguing, that it was disrespectful to him. And if I was going to argue, argue, but to leave the room was disrespectful. And that had a profound effect because it it was totally true. It was completely right that it was on my part, it was childish it was shutting down a conversation or an argument rather than seeing it through. And it wasn't going to lead to productive arguing. Like in, in a way, one of the most important things a couple can learn to do is learn how to argue mm-hmm. um, respectfully. And that doesn't mean you're not going to shout at each other, you know, but it means you have to have rules of engagement. Mm-hmm. And if it's just one person saying this is what it's going to be or storming out, that's not going to be a healthy relationship. And I'm like very grateful to him. And I had to, I had to learn to suppress my anger and retrain myself how to argue in a way that was respectful. And, and you have to be able to learn those things. You know, you have to see those things. You have to see yourself and your own flaws that are causing someone else to feel disrespected or not valued the way you would want to yourself want to be valued. Yeah. I mean, ironically, I'm very good at arguing and I don't have a problem arguing. It doesn't like upset me or anything like that. But I, my experience has been that, you know, I've been with a lot of men who do shut down and storm off. Yeah, well, that's not acceptable either. Right. Yeah. So then you have to say, are we ever going to get anywhere if you just like store, leave the house? Right. We have a conflict or disagreement where I'm like, I'm not talking about this. Like, okay. Like, I mean, we, you know, we don't have to talk about everything all the time. It can be like, we'll have this conversation later. If you get too mad, I think it's fair to take space, blah, blah, blah. blah. But anyway, this is a whole other aside. I, I guess, um, I mean, part of the thing that modern feminism has has gifted women with is this idea that if you criticize anything about women or you say like well what's your role in this or you kind of ask for accountability or something like that it's called judging or even better shaming so Mm -hmm. you know it's like oh you're you're shaming me and it's like well I'm not really shaming you but I'm sort of thinking critically about what you're doing here and asking you why you're doing it. And if this is really serving you, I guess maybe that makes you feel bad, but you know, like we right. can't just well, not we have, have a right not to feel bad. I think is bad. the message, yeah. the right, the right, the right to good sex, the right to never feel bad after sex. Um, 
That's what a lot of this comes down to. And to not have anybody question like whether or not, yeah, your behaviors are really like, are really actually empowering behaviors. Like, is this, are these, or I said yes, but I didn't mean it. And you should have read my mind. And now I regret that I did that. And it's your fault. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I'm, I'm interested to know what you think. I mean, obviously in feminism, we talk about gender and, and masculinity and femininity a lot. Um, But I sort of started to realize that, for a lot of people when they think about or when they talk about masculinity and femininity, they're not talking about it or thinking about it in the same way that feminists are. And it's sort of, we end up kind of like talking past each other because of that. Like I know, I know what radical feminists mean when they, they talk about femininity and masculinity, but most people aren't radical feminists. So they don't think about things in that way. But I'm curious to know what you think about those those roles and words. You know, are these sort of ideas that should be thrown out? Are they inherently bad ideas? Are they neutral concepts? What, that like, there's inherently masculine and feminine traits? No, I don't think they should be thrown out. I don't think they should oppress you. I don't think one should be seen as superior or, you know, dominant. But I think that they totally exist. And they're... And this is the other thing, like, I like maleness. I'm attracted to maleness. I like sinewy muscles, you know. I I, 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 I like that. That, that It's the, the, the French and the, you know, vive la différence. Like, the reasons men and women, heterosexuals, are attracted to each other is because of their differences. And if a man is more like me, I'm not going to be attracted to him. I'm just not. I don't want to be with another woman. I want to be with a man and whatever that comes to. And that's why we have to work through and, you know, we have to work through our differences in the sense that we have to get along. We have to respect each other. Um, But I don't want to deny that there are differences the same way that I think that fathers bring or men bring unique strengths as fathers, as women do as mothers. And they're, different and they're complementary. It doesn't mean you have to be oppressed as a woman. It doesn't mean, uh, you know, and I think again, to go back, that's why the categorizing these things in power dynamics is terrible uh, because ultimately they're very complementary and can be very complementary. Um, and, you know, and in modernization, you know, the modern world has given us a great, basis for respect and understanding that these traits should not oppress either side. But I also like the differences and I don't want to, you know, and we found that, you know, it's been study after study that very feminist men are not attracted or not attractive to strong women. Like we just don't want that. So let's stop pretending we do. Yeah. I mean, I said, on my channel recently, this isn't the first time I've said this, but you know, I, I was like, I like alpha men. Like I want a man who's like a man, like I'm attracted to masculinity. I'm attracted to a man who's stronger than me and bigger than me and taller than me. And who's like a leader and who is, you know, 
confident and, you know, to be honest, kind of like dominant, like somebody who can take charge. And that's not because like I want to be like submissive all the time or like I'm passive. Like I'm sort of that's not my personality. I'm not a passive person. Like I'm a confident person and I'm pretty like assertive and, you know, like I know what I'm doing. <laughs> like, But at the same time, you know, that's I that is. I think something sort of natural and I don't care. Like I'm not going to like apologize for that because it's not politically correct. It's what I'm attracted to as a heterosexual woman. And I, and I do think that there should be a kind of like dynamic in a relationship. Like I don't want to be in charge of the relationship. I don't want to be the dominant one in the relationship, which even, you know, that means even more so that I need like a masculine man. Cause otherwise I'll like kind of like steamroller right. him. Right. right. Like, but I think, you know, like, you know, some feminists are unhappy. And right. maybe and alpha is not a And then get user. mixed messages. Like, they're terrified that, you know, on the one hand, we want them to pay for dinner and decide where to go on the date and be, you know, open doors and be, as you say, authoritative. And then on the other hand, then we're like, oh, my God, if you do that, it's it's like, I don't know what to think. I could be oppressed. It's It's so stupid. I mean, it's just, it's just sad. And I, I think it's sown tons of confusion um, and something that I feel for this generation, my daughters, that they have to work through, you know, and I hope, I hope it's, I hope they're able to. So do you think that there's going to be some or do you see some kind of backlash do you see like I've seen conversations and debates happening online that say like oh because feminism kind of got so messed up or feminism took it too far however you want to frame it um the backlash is this like return to they they say trad fem like this return to like traditional femininity and yeah I don't like, I don't gender. know I mean, I don't know. I mean, the species has to procreate. We'll have to figure out how to do that. I mean, in the, in, in, you know, in the 90s, we saw a lot of women. This was the time I was writing about re-evaluating motherhood and marriage. Then we saw, you know, suddenly traditional marriages just come back in a huge way. The bridezilla phenomenon, you know, after like people were getting married on a beach and egalitarian make up your own word ceremonies. Suddenly we were back to full scale, you know, uh, weddings. Um, so, you know, there'll always be a back and forth corrective. I don't know what's going to happen. I think people, whatever the culture is telling them, I think you still see as you have articulated women want what women want, men want what men want. And there's going to, whatever the prevailing orthodoxies are telling them, they're going to find a way to work it out. And in the end, people still want to be together. They still want families. They still want meaningful connections. It may be taking them longer to get to those, but I think the end is what we all want. Um, and uh, and I'll, I'll just have faith in humanity that it'll work itself out. Yeah, well, again, you know, nature seems to take care of itself, and we do <laughs> remain a part of nature, whether we like it or not. <laughs> Just whether we like it or not. Um, I'll let you go. Thank you so much for your time. It was really awesome to chat with you. I hope that we can... May, it was lovely to be on your show, and thank you for having me. Okay. Good to see care. you again. Bye.
You too. Have a great night. You too. Bye-bye. I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy. I rely solely on donors and individual supporters to continue to do the work I do. You can donate as little as $5 a month or more. It all counts. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm.